I usually don't get nervous, but like that music like has my, <laughs> it's like, what's wrong with me? Like my heart is racing. Uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, welcome all of our campuses at RCC. Oh, man, I, my name is Grace Trick, and I'm the lead pastor at our Fairhope campus. And uh, Paul and I have swapped places, and he's in Fairhope. And I was thinking, uh, when I was growing up in the late 80s and the early 90s, there was this book called Where's Waldo? And, uh, and it was a, if you, you may be familiar with it, but uh, it, it was this big picture and had all these little people, and you had to find Waldo. And Waldo always had on a little beanie and a red and white striped shirt and glasses. And, and there are all these, you know, hundreds of little people and that looked a little bit like Waldo, but not quite Waldo. And the point was to find Waldo. And I just thought maybe as, as Paul's going from campus to campus, we could start something that goes like, where's Paul, though? And... You know, and, and so at the other campuses, you know, Paul may just show up, and uh, we have to get him a little beanie and a shirt. But um, we, uh, uh, so he's in Fairhope, and I'm here, and I'm in this conversation. We're going to start this conversation called uh, Breathing Room with you this morning. And, and I just want you to know that I want to be uh, really transparent this morning. And, uh, and, and so to kind of illustrate that or show you what I mean by that, uh, how many of you have seen Avengers Endgame? Okay, the rest of you are 50 and older or just don't care. Um, and, 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 if you're, and if you're older, that's okay. I got a reference for you later that, that, that will you'll be all, you know, you'll get it. I'm an equal opportunity illustrator. Um, so I, I, I got you covered. But if you go and watch Endgame, it doesn't matter, the Avengers Endgame, it doesn't matter if you've seen the previous 21 movies. There's something that you pick up on within the first 10 to 15 minutes, and it's, and it's this. You pick up that something, has, something significant has happened. I mean, like, you, you, you don't know exactly what happened. You know, there's a lot of people that aren't there anymore, but you pick up that, that something in the past has happened. At the same time, you pick up on the fact that, that something is going to happen. There's this plan that's in process. Essentially, you pick up on the fact that you are in the middle of the story. It's what writers and producers call in media res, in the middle of, it's Latin for in the middle of the story, in the middle of the action. When I talk about being transparent this morning and we get into this conversation, the thing I'm being transparent about is that, that I am and my family is in media res. We are, we are in the middle of the story. I, I, wish, I wish I was all the way on the other side and, and I could say, hey, this is how we did this. And, and man, you know, life is great now and, and everything is perfect. Uh, but, but that's not where we are. We are absolutely in the middle of this thing, learning what it is to live with breathing room. So to get started, I want to get us all on the same page, and I want to define breathing room for you simply by this. Breathing room is the space between our current pace or the space between where we are in our life and our limits. Again, the space between our, our current pace or where we are, so you can think about it this way, the space between uh, your, your financial limits, you know, where you are versus how much money you're spending. You know, there's the, the space between where you are relationally and prioritizing those relationships. The space, how about this, the space or the pace between your limits and what you've got in your calendar. All right, so a, another word for this is simply margin. Is what kind of margin do you have in your life relationally, financially? What kind of margin, what kind of space do you have between where you are or your current pace and your limits? Now, when I think about that definition, I immediately in my brain, as I've been preparing, I, I was taken back to an incident that happened 
a year ago, and I used the word incident on purpose. Uh, one of the things I enjoy doing is, is I like to rock climb, and I, and I like to go caving, and I don't say spelunking because it just sounds funny, and I don't do it enough to be made fun of, and so I just say caving. But, but uh, and I know you guys got caves around here, um, and uh, one of the things I get to do with that is I partner with a ministry in Fairhope called Youth Reach Gulf Coast. And it's a ministry uh, for young men, like 18 to 21, who are looking for a fresh start. In fact, their, their tagline is, is Redeeming Lost Futures, and uh, just an incredible ministry. And I get to take these guys rock climbing and caving. And, uh, and it's always a great trip. You know, someone usually ends up crying, and it's just a, it's really exciting. And uh, one of the things we do is I, I, when I take them in this particular cave, it's about a six-hour round trip when you're taking about 12 guys in. And this isn't a cave with sidewalks and lights and, and handrails. This is a cave, and you come out covered in mud, and, uh, and it is exhausting. You're having to use lots of upper body strength to pull yourself up, you know, body strength to, to lower yourself down, and you're helping other people. And it is, a, it is an absolutely exhausting experience. One of the things that you have to do once we get in there, we have to, we have to traverse through, through what's called the pancake squeeze. Now, a pancake squeeze is about 15 yards of just this really, probably at its lowest point, 12 inches, maybe up to 18 inches, where you've got to crawl. I've, I've got you a picture. This is, this is my wife and my son in the pancake squeeze. Now, you can tell there's plenty of room there. Uh, by the way, any of you young parents, my son was uh, five when I did this. Terrible idea, right? He's going to need therapy. He's going to be scared of the dark for the rest of his life, okay? But, but we, we got him out. I, I literally had to drag him out screaming. It was all fun and games until it wasn't. And he's like, where's the elevator? I was like, negative, buddy. <laughs> we got a long way to go. But, but there, there, there's space for them. But this is, this is my brother. He's a, he's a bigger fella. He's about 6'2". I won't give his weight. But he's, he's, a, he's a bigger guy. And, and you can see kind of how tight he is. You've got to have your head turned. Well, we're getting to the pancake squeeze, and we've got a guy with us named Austin. Austin's a big guy. Austin's, Austin's about 6'2", 6'3", 315. He's, he's, a, he's a big guy. Now, I've taken Austin through this cave before, and the first time I measured him and made sure everything was, he would fit through there. And, and I've, I've taken almost 100 people through this cave. And so I, I know it fairly well. I kind of, you know, I'm comfortable with it. We get Austin all the way through the pancake squeeze with, I mean, like, uh, without any, any problems. We go all the way down to the bottom. There's another two hours probably to get to the bottom. You spend some time, there's a creek at the bottom. You walk through it. And, and then when you start coming back up, you have to go back through the pancake squeeze, one way in, one way out. And, uh, and I'm leading Austin through because I'm trying to lead him through the deepest troughs in this thing. And, uh, and he gets stuck. And, and I'm, not, I'm not worried, because, I, I mean, I, I've, I've carried a 69-year-old man through this thing who had quite the beer belly. So, I, like, I, I, I was like, we're good, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. 30 minutes later, we're still in the pancake squeeze. Austin is dry heaving because he's so exhausted. And then he can't take deep breaths because every time he inhales, his back presses up against the rock. His chest presses up against the ground. And he is like flipping out. And we're trying to keep him calm. And we're trying to, and, and I, at this point, I'm like low-key worried. I'm like, I, I, I don't know what we're going to do here. Um, I've never been in this situation. And so we're trying to talk him down. And again, he's dry heaving. At one point, I take our only water supply and like pour it at his chest area, trying to create some like slipperiness. 
Like maybe we can slide him through. I'm trying to figure anything out. And at the same time, acting like I'm good. And I'm not worried about getting this 315-pound man out of this squeeze. And so uh, finally, what we decide to do, we go to the back of Austin. And, and we put our feet, we're on our backs. We put our feet against his feet, me and another guy so that he can push against our feet because you can't get up on your elbows and shimmy or army crawl. It's really like all just in your hips and your toes. And so this gives him enough you know, push to, to get through this spot. When he gets out on the other side of the cave, the collar of his shirt, or the other side of the squeeze, the collar of his shirt is at his belt buckle, stretched down. Of course, then he's just like covered in mud too because I made a mud hole for him to waller in. And I mean, he was exhausted and you, and you imagine being in that position where he couldn't even as my brother's head is there he couldn't turn his head back and forth either way because it was so tight and when I think about the state of, of my life in the past years and the state of many people that I know we are we are existing we are we are living in that pancake squeeze where where there is absolutely no margin for error in our lives like our schedules are maxed out. There's no space. Our, our, our finances are maxed out. Many people are living beyond the limits when it comes financially and beyond their limits when it comes, you know, relationally or when it comes with their schedules. And for many of you, you don't even realize it yet and you won't realize it until something unexpected happens in life and then all of a sudden you realize that you're stuck or all of a sudden you realize that you've got no margin for error. And don't get me wrong, there are seasons that are just crazy. There's a, there's a video trending right now on Facebook. It's a couple, a uh, man and wife, that sing funny songs, and, and, and it's called Maycember. And basically the song is about how May is like December when it comes to busyness, except you don't get presents. And, and if you're a parent, you're like, you got, you got kids getting out of school, you're trying to get them registered for, you know, uh, camps, you, you, there's tests going on, and you're trying to juggle all this, and, and you're like, man, this, this, is, this season right here, good grief, man, this is, a, this is a busy season. And so I know in life there are going to be seasons that are just crazy, and there's nothing you can do about it. But for many people, one season merges into another season and a season by by definition has an end but one season merges into another season into another season and for many of you you're like me and my family we had adopted a maxed out lifestyle in every aspect of our life it wasn't a season any longer and if you do that long enough you end up right here you end up tired broken and ready to quit in fact when I sat in Paul's office our senior pastor a little over a year ago this is where I was looking for answers and, and, and when, you, when you see tired broken and ready to quit I don't want you to think just physically because that doesn't describe me I, I wasn't physically tired physically broken or physically ready to quit no 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 I'm talking like at the deepest core of me it what i would call it my soul my soul was tired my family's soul my wife's soul was tired and broken we at the soul level were ready to quit and let me just tell you when you get to that place you cannot love others well 
You, you can't even receive love well. And you, the, the, the question that we always talk about here, what does love require of me? You can't ask that question when you're in this state. You can't ask that question when your soul is dry and withered and burned up. You can't, listen, this is why this is so important. You can't effectively live out the gospel. You can't effectively be for your neighbor and for your community when you're living from an empty and dry place, when you have no breathing room. And so what I began to do, I began looking for someone to blame. The first person I blamed was progress, culture. Like we live in a culture of progress. It's always about getting more, you know, achieving more, bigger homes, you know, you know moving up the, the corporate ladder. It's always about more. We live in a culture of progress. Our culture is driven by progress. In fact, so much so, it permeates every aspect of our life. For many of you, you've probably right now on your wrist have a device, an Apple Watch or a Fitbit that manages your progress and tells you how you're doing with your steps and how many calories you're burning. I mean, with, with mine, I've got a group of friends, and their progress gets shared with me, and my progress gets shared with them. And late at night, if I'm close to being in first place, I may get up and, like, sprint out to the mailbox and back just to spike my heart rate so I can come in first. And then somebody else goes and does it. And we go to bed at 2 in the morning. And exercise isn't a bad thing. In fact, progress isn't a bad thing. In fact, when I look for somebody to blame, I can't blame culture for the state of my family. I can't blame culture for the state of my soul. Culture just is. I live in it. It doesn't define me. So then I think, well, I'll blame God. Because I'm just wired this way. Like I I'm wired to be on all the time. I want to know the rules, and I want to know the limits so I can see just how close I can get to them. And that's a fact. If you tell me I can't, I will prove to you or die trying, and I have scars and stories to prove it, trying to prove you wrong. That's the way I'm wired. I want to get things done. But I can't sit back and go, oh, it's just the way I'm wired. I mean, you probably know people like that that probably... Uh, this is, this is what, where a lot of people get. I just speak my mind. We also call you a jerk, right? <laughs> you don't just get to say mean things and, and say, oh, that's just the way I am. So like that, that's a terrible excuse. I can't, I can't blame progress. I can't say, well, that's just the way I am. And, and anything I've learned, if anything I've learned in the past year is I've got to keep digging deeper and I've got to keep asking why. And when I ask why, I finally end up at this word right here, fear. So how does fear play any role in this? And it's how fear expresses itself. For one, the fear of missing out. FOMO. We fear missing an opportunity because that opportunity may be the opportunity that takes us to the next level that allows us Get the connection that allows us to progress even further. We fear our children will miss an opportunity. And so we schedule and we do and we send. All the while spreading ourselves beyond our limits. But we have no margin for error. Then there's the fear of falling behind. Here's what's crazy about this one. 
You know what drives this one? The comparison trap. We compare everything. We compare houses. We compare cars. We compare families. We compare our spouse. We compare our kids. And we go, what if, what if my kid doesn't add up academically? What if he's not achieving athletically or musically or whatever the extracurricular thing is? And so we, we schedule more tutoring and we schedule more camps and we schedule more training and we schedule more coaching and we spend more money. And, 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 and hear me, you should want what's best for your children. But I think you understand the tension that I'm speaking to. The comparison trap drives us, and so we fear falling behind someone else. I've got to live in that neighborhood. If I could just get that job, if I could just get that promotion, if we could just live in that neighborhood, if I could just drive that car. So we fear falling behind. So we overextend, and we push beyond our limits. And the last one is the fear of insignificance, the fear of not mattering. I think with all of us, I think anybody that's mentally healthy would say we don't just want to be takers in this world. We want to contribute. But we can take that to an extreme. I want to matter. I want to make an impact. I want to check the boxes. I want to do more than just use up good air and take up a seat. I want to make an impact. And we let this fear drive us beyond our limits. And here's the deal. You take that fear and then you drop it in a culture of progress, and you've got no breathing room. You could say it like this, fear plus culture of progress equals no breathing room, equals a situation where your soul is tired, when your soul is empty, when you can't love well, when you can't receive love well, when you can't love others well. And I'm not a doctor, but I would diagnose most of America with this equation that they're driven by fear living in a progress culture and they have overextended themselves to where there is no breathing room like Austin in that squeeze to take a, bre- take a deep breath is to push up against the rock and to push down against the ground there is no margin for error in your life and again this is in media res for me which is good news. And there's a reason we're talking about this at church this morning. Because if you're going to create breathing room, I'm just going to shoot you straight, you're going to have to do something with your schedule. You're just going to have to. You're going to have to do something with your priorities, with your relationships. But that's not where you start. You're going to have to do something, you know, if you're overextended financially, if you're living on 120% of your income, You're going to have to do something. You're going to have to work a budget. But that's not where it begins. See, the reality is, is breathing room is a God thing. There is a connection between our faith and our ability to create breathing room, to create margin in our life. In fact, God created breathing room. A couple weeks ago, Paul talked to us about the Ten Commandments and how they were a grace from God and and, and, and we kind of unpack those. This morning, I want to go back and, and revisit not just the Ten Commandments, but really the, the total 613, not all of them, but a handful of them, so you can see 
how God, from the very beginning of time, from the very beginning of rescuing his people out of Egypt and establishing his nation, it was his idea that we have breathing room. And what we're going to find is we operate best with breathing rooms. Let me show you a couple examples. And I'll, I'll give you some context as we go. This is in Leviticus. Oh, there's, there's Moses. So let me... <laughs> so intimidating. So let, before I give you some examples, let me, let, me, uh, let me set you some context. So, so this guy comes in. God uses Moses to, to rescue his people. All right? Now, this is my reference for all you old folks. This is like the 1950s. Now you probably grew up, he's like, man, that's Charlton Heston, right? Looks just like Moses. Had no idea that they looked alike, right? Who knew, right? God uses Moses to rescue the people out of, out of Egypt. And when he gets them out of Egypt, he, he gives them all of these commandments, all of these, these rules and these regulations, and he does this. He does this because that's what a, a good father does. You can think about it this way, is, is that it was one thing for God to get the Israelite people out of Egypt. They've been in slavery for 400 years, right? So you've got generation after generation after generation, and all they've known, all they've known is slavery. And so you, even the stories they tell, even now, if you've got grandparents and they share stories with you, the, the, these people, their stories all revolved around living in slavery 24-7, 365 days a, a year. This is all they knew was, was work. And God rescues them using Moses, brings them out, and then he gives, these, gives them these commands because they don't know how to live in freedom. Again, it was one thing for, the, for God to get them out of Egypt. Now God has to get Egypt out of them, and he uses these commandments to do that. He, he does what any good parent or any good father would do. He gives them parameters for their protection. But here's the deal. For those parameters to make any kind of impact, but it required his people to trust him. He gave them, he gives them parameters to protect them. This is what Paul talked about two weeks ago. But it required his people to trust him. It required his people to go, okay, God, like I don't really understand this, and this, I, I'm not connecting the dots, but, but I'm going to trust you with these commandments. And we're going to look at some of those to kind of see how God instilled breathing room in the people. If you read in Leviticus, and I'll give you some context as we go. When you reap the harvest of your land... Do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings. That would be what, you, what, what they dropped, what, what you missed. Do not, gather, uh, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather to the gleanings, uh, gather the gleanings of, of your harvest. He says, so look, and again, this is a culture of people who they've never had their own crops. They've, they've never worked for themselves. They worked for the Egyptians. And now they have craps, crops, and God says, hey, look, this is what you're going to do. When you reap your harvest, I want you to create breathing room. I don't want you to go all the way to, to the edges. Leave some space. And if you drop something, go, don't go back. And he continues. He says, and do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. And then he says this, I am the Lord, your God. So imagine, you've been in slavery, that's all you've ever known, you come out now for the first time, you're going to have your own crops that you can harvest, and God says, hey, this is what I want you to do, I want you to leave some out there, I want you to create some space between where you are and your limits, and they would have gone, whoa, 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 God, yeah, hang on, 
Like, we live in a hand-to-mouth culture. We don't work. We don't eat. We don't waste things. We don't leave things out there. That, that's food on the table. We can't do that. God says, no, I want you to create some breathing room. And this is why this statement is so important. And he says, I am the Lord, your God. The reason that's so important is because he's saying, hey, I'm your God. You can trust me. I'm not some of the, the, the many gods of the Egyptians. No, I am your God. Remember, I rescued you. I, I'm going to take care of you. I am your God. I am for you. And so the principle is, is this. Do not take everything to the limit. Have space. And in that space, trust that God will take care of you. Do not take everything to the limit. But have space, and in the space, trust that God will take care of you. He says it again in, in Deuteronomy. He says it this way. When you're harvesting in your fields and you overlook a sheaf, which is like a bundle of grain, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that, and get this phrase, the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So he says, hey, leave it. Don't go back and get it again. This is in their culture. They're like, God, I don't, I don't understand that. And what God is doing is instilling in every aspect of life breathing room. Breathing room for his people. There's another principle. It's called the tithe principle. And if you've been in church, you've probably heard it. And the tithe principle goes something like this, is that you set back 10 for them. It was 10 to 20% of their income. And, and, and what God would do, they, they would take and use that in the religious system to take care of the poor. But again, think about this. You're a culture fresh out of slavery. You don't know anything but progress. And, and, and now you're finally making money like you work for you now. And God says, hey, I don't want you to spend all of that that you made. I want you to put some of it back. And for them, what the, what they would, what the children would see were mom and dad physically taking income because there were no banks, placing it in a jar, and, and then setting it aside, creating space financially. If I'm honest with you, like the, the crops thing, I, that, that didn't really connect with me. The giving thing, I, I've been tithing to the church since I had a job and in the seventh grade, I kind of get that. This is the one that gets me, and it actually made his top ten. And it's called the Sabbath. And this is what God says. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now, holy just means set apart. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Sabbath in the original Hebrew has the, the phrase to stop built into it. This is in media res for me. The idea of stopping. The idea of recognizing that, that I don't have to do everything. That I don't have to take every opportunity. Because for the ancient Jewish people, what that meant was on Friday at sundown everything stopped. If there's crops in the fields, they, they, they stayed out there. If there were eggs that needed to be gathered, they didn't get gathered for 24 hours. Everything stopped. And when everything stopped, it reminded the people that they are finite and that God is infinite. 
and that they are dispensable, and God is indispensable. And this is the greatest thing. It reminded the people that if they stop, the world won't. And for us, we, we get the idea of, of days off. Most people have one, maybe two days off. But you understand, and I understand, that, that most of us, when we take vacations, we need vacations from our vacations. So when we talk about a stop, when we talk about a Sabbath, we're talking about something that breathes life into our soul. Not something that continues to drain our soul. And that's what God had in mind then. God takes it a step further, though. He not only commanded it, he modeled it. If you keep reading in Exodus, it says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He says, but he rested on the seventh day. Now let's get something straight. If God's God, he doesn't need to rest. I mean, God, God didn't get finished of six days of creation and like hobble back to his holy recliner and go, gosh almighty, that was work. Like he, he didn't do it. God, God isn't, wasn't mentally exhausted for figure, or trying to figure out how he was going to make a snake move across the ground without feet and legs. In fact, to be honest, I think I, I always like try to picture God making creation and, and I picture God up there with the snakes going like, man, these things are easy. Like, just rolling out some, here's a big one. You know? <laughs> I don't know if that's how he did it. I don't know if he used clay. <laughs> but God wasn't, God wasn't exhausted. He didn't need to rest. He's modeling rest. Because he knows that we operate best when we have rest in our lives. He knows that we love best when we have rest in our lives. Because he created us. He understands us. And we are driven by our fears and our progress. We end up beyond our limits. I love how Peter Scazzario says in, in one of his books, he says, Life on this side of heaven is an unfinished symphony. We accomplish one goal and then immediately are confronted with new opportunities and challenges. You ever thought about that? Like there's always something to do. If you're a mom or a dad, there's never been a time where you're just like, man, I just don't know what I need to do. I got nothing to do. That, that thought, I know, that thought has never crossed your mind. I think I might play some checkers. Like you've, you've never, th th this, is, this is reality. Every time there's something that we have to do and we get it done, there's always another have to do to do. It never stops. It never stops. And here's the pushback. Great, that sounds amazing. Like I would love, I would love to do that. I, I would love to like to, to just rest to do something, to pause, to do something that, that, that brings life to my soul. But this is the 21st century. Everybody works 50, 60 hours, if not more, a week. That's not, it's just not an option. There's too many, there's too many things to get done. And, and, and by the way, Gray, I don't know if you understand this, but, but I do important work. And if I don't get things done, then, then something's wrong. And I would say, 
I hear you. But I would tell you this. Not as someone who's been on the other side of it, but someone that is in the middle of it. And I would say this as candidly and as honestly as I could. You can push back. And you can continue to live beyond your limits. And you can continue to be driven by fear, the fear of missing out or falling behind or this, you know, having to feel like you matter, this fear of insignificance. You can do that. You, you, can, be, you can let the, the, the culture set the pace to your life. And, and, and even more, you can take those things and you can project them onto your family and onto your spouse and onto your kids. And you can create that kind of overextension in their life. You can do it, but it's going to cost you more than you would ever be willing to pay if you could see the final invoice at the end of your life. You can ignore it, but it's going to cost you far more than you ever could have imagined. That's why Jesus said it this way. He said, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world? What good is it to have all of this progress to, to, to continue to achieve and, and get more and be driven by the comparison trap. What, what good is it, is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? And that is exactly what you will forfeit. In fact, if you find yourself in this place, stress levels go up. Your, your family probably walks around you and, and, and they, don't know, they don't know when the top's going to blow. You're like a, a volcano that's just bubbling. And not only do, do stress levels go up, your, your focus narrows. And you begin to get hyper-focused on, on what's most urgent and instead of what's most important. And hear me, those are not equals. Those are not synonymous. Important is not the same thing as urgent. But when we're living in this place, we focus on only what is most urgent. If I can just fix this and we neglect the things that are most important, which is the third thing our relationships suffer. We neglect the people closest to us. We don't love the people closest to us the best way we can. And again, you could push back and say, great, this, this describes my life. You are exactly right. My kids never know when I'm going to blow up. And I, if I could just get this one thing done, then I can move forward. And, and our relationships are suffering. But you'll follow it with this phrase. There's no rest for the weary. Just no rest, I don't know where to start. And I would tell you that you are exactly right. There is no rest for the weary if you do not trust God with it. You, just, you, will, you will be correct. A little over a year ago, my wife and I sat down with Paul, our senior pastor, and his wife Melody over in Fairhope. And, and we met, we talked all day, uh, and as we were talking, and, and we were rehashing our 13 years in ministry, and the last seven is me being the, the lead pastor, and really five of those I was doing, doing student ministry and lead pastoring, and my wife works in nonprofit work, and uh, so it, it's a lot like ministry, and we we're just rehashing all that, that it, you know, all that, that our family had been through, and all the, the transitions with the church, and and all of that, and Paul, not in, a, not in a moment of trying to, like, jab us or anything like that. He just made this comment, and it resonated so loudly with me. He said, guys, he said, he said, we always have to protect our margin. 
He's like, nobody else will protect that for you. In fact, if you're willing to give, people will continue to take. And that blew my mind because all of a sudden this wave of conviction came over me. And I was like, I have not, proje- I have not protected my own margin. I have projected my overextension onto my wife and my kids. I have not protected the margin of my family. And it has cost my family. And we are still recovering. So if you say, Gray, there's no rest for the weary, you are correct. Unless you start with trust. You could say it this way. Before breathing room is a schedule issue, a spending issue, or a relationship issue. It is a a trust issue. If you start with looking at your schedule, you'll quit. You're like, I don't don't see the breathing room. If you start with looking at your finances, and you're going to have to do that, you're like, I I don't know where where the margin is going to come from. If you start with reprioritizing your relationships, there's just so many people that need me, like I don't know what to do. If you start in those places, you, you, you will be paralyzed into doing nothing. But if you start here, all right, God, I'm going to trust you with this. I'm going to trust that your parameters are for my protection. In fact, Jesus said it this way in the New Testament about the Sabbath. He said this, he said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was a gift to us but like any gift if we don't use it it's useless it's a grace it's a gift it's made for us to benefit us to benefit you to benefit your family and as much as this is like a schedule thing or a financial thing or relationship thing this is a gospel thing Because we can't love well if our souls are dry. And we can't be for people if our souls are dry. And we can't ask, what does love require of me? If we're leading from an empty place, from the deepest part of our life. You'll have to have hard conversations. Some of you probably need to get in a Dave Ramsey class. Some of you need to sit down with your kids. Some of you need to learn the words N-O. But before any of that, you've got to trust God with it. Because if you don't start there, you'll never move forward. You are at your best when you got rest. Let me pray for you. Father, I know in this room, there are in all all of our campuses, so many different people from so many different backgrounds with so many different things going on in their lives. And the idea of creating breathing room in and of itself can be overwhelming. And we can have a thousand and one reasons why we can't. And this won't work. 
But God, I just simply pray that you would give us the courage to trust you. With our finances, trust you with our families. And God, trust that that your parameters and and the, the notion and the idea and the truth of breathing room is a gift. And Father, I pray for everyone here this morning on all of our campuses. Help us. Help us to open that gift of grace. Place it in our lives so that our souls, so that our families, so that our communities can flourish in a way that brings honor and glory to you. We love you and we pray these things. In Jesus' name.